Genesis chapter 18 this morning. So, you know, I've been teaching now. I was trying to calculate the other day. I've been teaching since college, preaching since shortly after college. Um, And unfortunately, I never remember what I've shared and what I haven't shared in terms of illustrations and other things. So stop me if you've heard this before. But have I ever mentioned that during my first year of college, there was a... I'm sorry, it was my second year of college, living in the dorms. There was this gentleman named Terry, a rather large individual, about two inches shorter than me, with legs the size of tree trunks. And um, he he was a few years older than us because he had already been to college for a few years and had dropped out, and now he was back, coming back into school. But he was a rather strange individual, um, sort of homely looking and a rather weird personality but he was absolutely huge from the waist well from about the chest down one of these big stomachs that kind of came out like straight it wasn't like a normal it was all in the front and then his legs were massive and we found out the reason why is he was a power lifter a squatter essentially deadlifter when he was in college and competed on a national level so he would go to nationals doing this stuff which kind of explains the because you, when you watch these guys sometimes that's what you see you know and um, so anyway he shows up and he was very braggadocious he would talk about himself all the time and his skills and how he was this power lifter and set some records and was on a national level, you know. But then he also bragged about his skills in playing softball and all the home runs that he could hit and everything else. And we're looking at this guy and we're thinking, really? Because he sure didn't act like it, sure didn't look like it. In fact, even though he kind of had that build, when he would walk down the hallway, whenever we would try to go to, to lunch or dinner, he always wanted to go along, and at the time, I wasn't very spiritually mature, and most of the guys on the floor were all unsaved, and nobody wanted him to go, you know. And he would say, guys, wait for me! And then he would literally walk like this. It wasn't just like a step, it was like a step and a couple of bounces, and then a step and a couple of bounces, and step and a couple of bounces, and he'd just go, I'll catch up with you, you know. So this was Terry. Nobody liked him, partly because he would brag all the time, but nobody believed the things that he said. Like, yeah, maybe he did lift, but there's certainly no way this guy, no. You know, yeah, maybe he played softball. You're right. The guy can't even walk. How could he run a base, right? So none of us believed these outrageous claims that he made. Well, now, I played softball. I ran a, I had a coached a softball team in college, like a, an intramural kind of a softball team, and he wanted desperately to play on our team. And he said, look, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, you know, I can hit, I can hit, I'm great at it, you know. And I'm like, there's no way. So big promises, no way these promises were true, right? Well, there was another guy on our floor named Art. Now this Art was one of these, um, he was an African-American gentleman and had the typical build that you might expect of like, uh, an African American football star, you know. I mean, he looks like I think he came out of the womb cut, being able to bench like 200. You know, it's just because that's the way this guy looked, and he would spend all this time in the gym, and he just hated Terry, just hated him with a passion. Partly because Art would brag, but so did Terry. Now it looked like Art 
could back up what he bragged about, right? So Art came up with this plan. He was going to take Terry to the gym. And he told all of us on the floor what he was going to do. I'm going to take him to the gym. I'm going to embarrass this guy, you know. And again, very immature. We were all like, yeah, do it. Put him in his place, you know. So we knew the day. And Terry agreed to go with him. And so we all knew that day was coming. And we were looking forward to it, you know. And so after classes got done for that day. And after we all went to dinner that night. Art and Terry took off and went to the gym. And we're all back at the dorm and we can't wait for those two to get back. And so after an hour or two, Art shows up, walks down the hallway. We're all there kind of waiting, can't wait to get his report, you know, and kind of like, how did you do with this guy? Did you really just give it? And he just walked, ignored us, walked in his room and slammed the door. Literally slammed the door. We're like, what the heck is that all about? And a few minutes later, here comes Terry. Just walking, you know. So finally, we go down to Art and we knock on his door and we're like, What is going on? You know, he says, Well, what happened? What happened? He just goes, I want to talk about it. We're like, Dude, come on. We can't wait to hear what happened. You know, what did you do? You know, what's this guy? You put him in his place and he's like, Don't want to talk about it. Don't want to talk. Come to find out, finally, Art says, Well, he goes, I don't think I've ever seen a guy deadlift as much weight as this guy did. He said, I took him over and I threw on some weights thinking, let's see what this guy can do. And he goes, he walks over and he slams out a few more and he said, boom. And he goes, everybody there was shocked at this guy. And he's like, I've never seen a guy lift that much weight. He was out of, out of, he hadn't lifted for at least a year or two. He'd been out of college, but he clearly lived up to his claims. So I get to thinking, I'm like, okay, maybe he brags, but okay. Well, he's still pestering me about playing softball. And we needed a guy because we were a couple of guys short. And back then, I don't know if it's the same way today. You've got to have so many guys. If you don't have enough guys, you don't play. You've got to forfeit the game. So we had a game where we didn't have enough guys. And finally, I said, hey, Terry, we need a guy. Why don't you come? So he's like, great, you know. So he comes down to play for the game. And I remember when he went up the bat. The first time he went up the bat, just whiffed. Just completely whiffed. You know? Struck out. I'm like, oh, great. You know? Gets up the second time. The first ball that came across the plate, when he hit it, it literally went from our ball diamond all the way over the outfield fence and into the third or fourth row of the parking lot and bounced off the hood of a car. And we all kind of went... No, he still had to make the bases, so... (laughs) He just worked his way around, came to home plate and touched. He did that two more times in that game. One of the times, we had the diamonds we were in were four diamonds together, and they were sort of back-to-back. And so you sort of shared an outfield fence. The The next two times he hit the ball went clear over the fence and beyond, over the top, of the field or outfielders in the other diamonds. And so he continued to play for us that season, and he probably every game hit two or three home runs. This guy lived up to his promises. That's sort of what we're going to see today. Today we're looking at Genesis 18, and one of the things we're going to learn is that 
First off, the blessings and promises that we have from God come because of the peace and the fellowship that we share with Him. But the second thing we're going to see is that even though God's promises are incredible, they're not impossible for Him. I don't want to compare Terry to God, but Terry made these big promises. I can deadlift and I can hit the ball. We didn't believe Him. They were too incredible for us to believe. But they weren't impossible for him to accomplish and to prove that he could. So we're going to look at this today. Genesis chapter 18. God's blessings and promises are a result of the peace and the fellowship we have with him. Look at verses 1, 2, 1, 2 and 3 from Genesis 18. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. While he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day, when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass by your servant. So while Abraham is sitting at the door of the tent, three visitors show up. We know that one of the visitors is the Lord because that's pretty much spelled out in the text. Most of us, I would say, um, from a scholarly side, if you will, believe that this is probably the, the pre-incarnate Christ. You know, Jesus's, one of Jesus' roles was to reveal the Father to us, and we always think of that in terms of the New Testament. But when you see God show up in human form in the Old Testament, it is likely Christ. We call it the pre-incarnate Christ. And part of the reasons we know that is because there are other passages in the scriptures where God comes down in flesh like that, but at the same token, you see or hear what's going on in heaven with God speaking, and you hear Jesus or this other God, if you will, speaking on earth. So God and heaven, God at earth at the same time, it's likely the pre-incarnate Christ. And that is what's commonly considered here, that it's the pre-incarnate Christ that shows up. And he shows up with two angels. Chapter 19, verse 1, clearly identifies these two as angels or messengers of God. Now, there's some debate as to whether or not Abraham knew that this was the Lord himself. And part of that, if you look in your different English translations, some of them capitalize the L in the word for Lord here. Some of them don't. For instance, let's see here, I think it's the um, New American Standard, the New English Translation, and the NIV all capitalize Lord. But... The um, LSB, the ESV, KJV, and others. I'm sorry, it's the other way around. The New American Standard, the NET, and the NIV put a lowercase l there. But others, like the Legacy, the EV, ESV, King James, others, put a capital L there. And the reason for that is, some translators, when they look at that, say, this should be a capital L, he knew it was the Lord. Some say, mm, maybe he didn't know, and they put a small l there. Um, those who believe that Abraham didn't recognize God suggests that he was just responding to these men with an ancient Near Eastern hospitality ritual, which is sort of part of the text. He bows down when he meets them. Um, He offers water to wash their feet. He provides them with food. That was an ancient Near East custom when you saw strangers. So it's possible that's all that's going on here, that he sees these men, he runs over, begins to talk to them, he bows down, he offers to wash their feet or bring them water to wash their feet, and he provides a meal for them. That's possible that's what's going on here. However, there's good reasons to believe that there's more going on here than that and that he truly did recognize that it was God. 
One of the reasons for this is that notice he addresses the Lord first. He doesn't just address all, all, all three men. He says, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. So he specifically addresses the Lord first out of these angels. Second, I'm going to argue that the Hebrew text itself suggests that he knew that it was the Lord. and It's not specifically the Hebrew text, but it has to do with the Hebrew text. And I'll explain it this way. There are two different words that are sort of used for Lord. Okay, And it all has to do with something called vowel pointing. I don't want to get too technical here, but when they wrote the Hebrew text, they didn't use vowels. They had vowels in their language, but they didn't use the vowels. They just used the consonants. And most Hebrews, as they would read that, would know what the word was. Okay, But, obviously, if you change vowels in the a word, or if they say you have three consonants or four consonants in a row, and you change the letters between those consonants, it makes different words, doesn't it? We'd have the same thing here in... English, if we take R and D and put them together, if you put a U and U in the middle and an E at the end, it makes rude. If you put, a, you know, an O and a D, you woe, right? That kind of a weirdness. But anyway, so what happens here is that about the eighth century, to make sure that um, the readers of the Hebrew Bible didn't sort of forget how to pronounce the words by just seeing the consonants, the Masoretes added these little dots, vowel pointing, to tell us what the vowels would be for those words. And in doing that, they would tell us what the word was. So a lot of words had the same consonants. And if you didn't know the vowels, you didn't know what the word was. Back when it was written, they would know. They could figure it out. If you've ever seen those little like memes and stuff where they take out all the vowels and they just put the letters there and you can still read it in English. Same thing, because we know, right? Well, they would put these little dots over the words for us about the 8th century so that we would know. Because it was no longer a spoken language. Well, what happened is the Masoretes actually pointed this word Lord in two different ways. Once, or in one way, it simply meant Lord, another meant my Lord. And it's the difference between Adonai and Adoni is the best way to describe it. I know that might get a little convoluted. I don't want to confuse anybody a whole lot here. So I'll just say it this way. The Masoretes, when they did the vowel pointing, thought that Abraham knew that it was the Lord, and so they pointed it that way to use the word that would symbolize that. Part of the reason they did that is because the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was made nine, or actually uh, 1,100 years prior to what the Masoretes did, they translated it that way. They translated it as Lord as if it were God. So again, I don't want to confuse this with all the weird details except to simply say that the Hebrew text itself, if we understand how the Masoretes interpreted it and how the Greek translators understood it, in the 3rd century B.C., they believed that Abraham recognized it as Lord, and so they translated it that way, and they put the vowel points to, to represent that. And so, I would go with the translations that use the capital L there. And in fact, the New American Standard says, My Lord, we'd take the my off of there. But it doesn't really matter in this case. So, I'm going to propose to you that Abraham knew exactly who it was. Now, so part of it's the language that's, that's used. Part of it's the way the Masoretes and, and the translators of the Septuagint, how they believed that 
It should be understood. And again, they believed that he knew it was the Lord. Another reason to suspect that Abraham knew um, that it was the Lord was primarily because he was accustomed to interacting with the Lord. This isn't the first time that the Lord had appeared to him or that he had spoken to the Lord. And so he had already been interacting with the Lord. So to see the Lord show up again, even with two other messengers, we should expect that he would recognize that this is who I'm speaking with, this is who I'm standing in front of. A fourth reason is that there seems to be an unusual amount of eagerness on the part of Abraham here. Notice that it says that he ran from the tent door, verse 2. Notice that it says in verse 6, he hurried into the tent to Sarah. Um, you go on a little bit later and said, he also ran um, to the herd to grab a young calf and he hurried to have it prepared. There is this um, hurriedness, this let's hurry up and get this done, that you don't really find in other texts where similar things happen. And so this eagerness that we see on Abraham's part to um, get Sarah to help prepare the meal and go out to the herd and grab it and do everything they needed to do would seem to suggest that I'm serving the Lord here. Finally, We know later in the chapter he clearly knows that it's the Lord. So we either have to expect that he didn't know it when he first showed up or at some point in his interaction all of a sudden the light bulb went on and he went, oh, this is the Lord. But we don't see that anywhere in the text. We don't see the light bulb go on anywhere in the text. But he clearly knows it's the Lord. So I'm going to propose with all of this that Abraham knows that it's the Lord that actually showed up with the angels. So... When you look at what he does next, some, I say, misinterpret it simply as an act of ancient Near Eastern hospitality. Many write this off as, there's nothing really special about this. He's just doing what the custom called for. Um, Providing water to wash one's feet, preparing a meal for visitors. Those are indeed acts of ancient Near Eastern hospitality. We actually see it elsewhere in the text. But, Meals were a really important part of covenant relationships, as Dustin has mentioned. And I believe that when we see what takes place here with this meal, we, see, we should see that as part of the covenant that the Lord established with Abraham. It wasn't just that he was performing an ancient Near East custom for the Lord. The meal represented the peace and fellowship between the two parties. When you used a meal as part of a covenant, that meal's purpose was to reveal or to express the relationship and the fellowship that the two parties had with one another. Think about what we do here. Why do we like to get together and eat? It shows the fellowship we have with one another. We had our birthday celebration with my brother-in-law Brent and, and Nana last night. Why do we do that? Because it's a way we fellowship. We hang out as families. We're not just performing some ritual. It's about the relationship that we have. And the meal as part of the covenant relationship did the very same thing. In fact, Isaac served a feast when he made a covenant with Abimelech. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 26. They weren't on the friendliest terms, Abimelech and Isaac. However, we read in Genesis chapter 26, verse 26 and following, we read these words. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar and advised, and his advisor, Ahuzath, and Philcol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, 
Let there now be an oath between us and even between you and us and let us make a covenant with you so that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. Then he made them a feast and they ate and drank. Why are they eating together? It's a way of symbolizing this newfound relationship and peace between them. Peace is even used in that verse. And so that's what their meal represented as part of that covenant relationship. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 5, Israel offered up an offering to the Lord when confirming the covenant at Mount Sinai. You can find that, you can read it on your own, but Leviticus chapter 7. And what's significant about that is the only offering that Israel was able to eat was the peace offering. Why? Because it symbolized their peace with the Lord, and so they ate that offering. When Gideon was visited by the angel of the Lord in Judges 6, you know what he does? He prepared a meal that was consumed by the Lord and ultimately represented the peace between himself and the Lord. Look at uh, Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, go down to verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, and Abarazite, the son of Gideon, was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O Lord, God, or, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of the Midians. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in your strength and deliver Israel from the land of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O Lord, how shall I, be, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh. And I am the youngest of my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from me until I come back to you and bring out the offer and my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from, the, from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and brought a broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. The angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on a rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of his staff and with it in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Again, peace is mentioned in this context. Now, there's multiple reasons for this. One, it's a demonstration. God consuming the meal was a demonstration that Gideon had asked for, a proof that he was there. But there's also this aspect of... Um, the fellowship and the relationship between God and Gideon that is symbolized in some respects with God consuming and willing to accept the feast that he laid before him, the offering that he laid before him. And so you see this theme that the meal when it comes to covenants or relationships is all about representing the fellowship and the peace that the two parties have with one another. 
And I believe that's what we see here. The Lord came down. He didn't need to visit Abraham at this point. In fact, we'll learn that he's on a mission here. The Lord is coming down with the angels to look at what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. Because the the, the depth of their sin had cried out to the Lord and he's about ready to destroy that city. But he makes a detour and he stops by Abraham to sit down and to fellowship with him and ends up sharing a meal. There's a reason for that. The Lord is demonstrating to Abraham the fellowship and the peace that he has with him as part of their covenant relationship. And I believe we should see that here and not just some ancient Near Eastern custom. That Abraham is just sort of thinking he's serving some strangers that happen to show up at his tent. No, he recognizes that it's the Lord, prepares a meal for him, sits down, and enjoys some fellowship with him. The angel of the Lord, and the Lord himself here, they didn't need to eat, but they did. And there's some symbolic purpose from that. So I'm going to say that God's willingness to sit and eat with Abraham provided, or the meal that was provided before him, was to symbolize the peace and fellowship that he shared with him as part of the covenant. In a moment, we're going to see that the primary purpose was visiting Sodom and Gomorrah. They didn't need to eat, but they wanted to sit in fellowship with Abram. So again, it was a demonstration of the peace and fellowship that he shared. So what's our takeaway with this? One of the things we see throughout the Bible is that God's blessings and promises flow out of the fellowship and the peace that he has with his people. This is certainly true of Abraham. We're going to see in a moment when immediately following the meal, God confirmed his promises to Abraham. They finished the meal and he confirms his promises. Why? Because the promises flow out of the peace and fellowship with God. There is no blessings. There are no promises without peace and fellowship with the Lord. That's just the way it works. There are many today, without knowing the Lord, expect the Lord's blessings and peace. Now, there's something called common grace, meaning that God extends even His grace to the unsaved, but that's not what we're talking about. Specific promises and blessings of the Lord come through and as a result of the fellowship and peace that we have with the Lord. The peace and fellowship comes first. The blessings come after that as a result. Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into His grace, in which we stand and we exult in the hope and glory of God. We have been brought into a peaceful relationship and fellowship with God, and the blessings that we receive flow out of that. We shouldn't expect them apart from that peace and fellowship that we have with Him. So every blessing and promise we have from God is a direct result of the peace and the fellowship we now share with Him. Amen? Now, we're going to go on to verses 9 through 12, where God promises surely appear incredible and beyond belief, but they're not impossible for Him. Look at verses 9 through 12. Chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. They then said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, There in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah and your wife will have a son. 
And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? So immediately after the meal, and we didn't cover that section there, but immediately after the meal, the Lord announces that he's going to return one year from this date, and by that time Sarah will have borne a son. Now, we see Sarah's response there. sounded like pure foolishness. Twice the text tells us she can't bear children. It talks about her age, and then that she's beyond, in case we didn't get it, she's beyond the age of childbearing. They were actually old. Chapter 17, Abraham was 99 and Sarah was, what, 90? So almost 10 years younger than him. Okay? She knew she was way past the age of bearing children. Remember back in chapter 16, she even said, the Lord closed up my womb and what did she do about it? Take Hagar, my, my maidservant. So can you blame her for laughing? It just wasn't possible. There is no way Sarah is becoming pregnant. It's just too incredible to believe that. So, what does she do? She laughs to herself, saying, Really? Am I going to have pleasure of this? Even my old husband here? Really? Can he have a son? But, nothing is actually impossible for God. Look at what it says in verses 13 through 15. And the Lord said to Abram, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, however, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. I get a chuckle out of this. As soon as God heard Sarah laugh, he posed these two rhetorical questions. Kind of one and, you know, combined, but for the most part it's two. Why did Sarah laugh, saying that she's too old? And is there really anything too difficult for me? Well, those are rhetorical questions. They don't really require an answer. If you remember back in chapter 17, Abraham had a very similar response. Very similar response. Look at chapter 17, verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? And will Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Well, at least Sarah didn't fall on her face laughing. The only way to say this is Abraham almost found it hysterical. Or, you know, hysterical. Really, Lord? Said, Come on, is that even possible? At least Sarah sort of laughed to herself. Didn't fall down on her face. I get this vision in my head here that... The Lord obviously knows what's going on, but you have to remember the setup here. The Lord is sitting, facing away from the tent opening. That's what the text indicates. Sarah is behind him. 
Okay? She doesn't think the Lord's going to hear her. And she says what she says under her breath or whatever it is, laughing to herself, whatever it is. But the Lord picks it up. Maybe she just did it quietly in her own head or maybe there's the lips move, whatever it is. But the Lord hears it. And you can almost imagine the Lord just sort of turning his head and giving her the side eye saying, no, but you did. It's almost comical, the interaction, but it's serious. And that she doubted that the Lord could do what he promised to do. And remember, this isn't the first time they were told this. Abraham already had the interaction. Do you think Abraham didn't go home and tell Sarah, guess what the Lord told me? The Lord told me that he was going to have, that I'm going to have a child through you. And I believed him right out of the gate. No, he probably didn't. But I'm sure he didn't tell her. He just laughed at him and fell on my face. Really? Yeah, he somehow thinks that we're going to have, but you know what? We'll trust him. No. He probably went home and said, Honey, the Lord came to me, told me we're going to have a child, and that you're going to be pregnant. And when she said, Oh, come on, Abraham, he's going to say, No, he told me that, and he promised me it would happen. Yeah, I didn't believe him at first. Yeah, I kind of chuckled. But that's what he said. So Sarah had to know about this. But yet the Lord promises again. She hears it. And she's in the background kind of going, yeah, right. Until the Lord gives her the side eye and says, why'd you say that, Abraham? Oh, I didn't say it. I didn't say Yes, you did. It's a quiet rebuke. Makes me think sometimes how many times if God were sitting here in front of me that he might give me the side eye. When I doubt his promises. And when I say, no, no, I didn't really doubt that. And he, really? You did. I love the fact that it's a quiet rebuke. It doesn't describe him turning around with a fiery gaze and saying, really, you don't believe? No, it's that gentle, quiet rebuke. No, but you did. And we can understand why, Sarah. I mean, she's got to know it's the Lord at this point. And when the Lord says, I heard that, and looks at you, yeah, I think I'd be a little afraid too. You know, it's like a kid when you dis- when kid disobeys and the parents say, no, I caught that. There's a little bit of fear there, which is why they then lie a second time. No, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I know you did it. I didn't really do it. <laughs> no, yes, you did, Sarah. So what's our takeaway? I think the lesson here is that while God's promises might sometimes appear to be incredible, there's nothing you can't do. There really isn't. I think most of us would agree intellectually um, that there's nothing God can't do. Our theology's right. If somebody cornered us, is there anything God can't do? You know, there's that old joke running around, and we did it when we were in college, you know, about things God cannot do. Can God make a rock that's so heavy that even he can't lift it? You go, wait a minute. Well, God can do anything, which means he could make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it. But wait a minute, but he could still lift it. You know, I mean, stupid questions like that. But the reality of it is, theologically, we all know God can do anything, right? But that doesn't necessarily make it so um, practically for us. Just because we know it in our head doesn't mean that we believe it in our heart. Especially the more challenging things. The more incredible things. You know, I don't like heights. Well, I don't like falling from high places. 
So, I remember as kids, we would go down to Florida and we would always stop at whatever it is, Rock City or Rock Mountain, whatever it is, which is way up in the mountains. And there was this one particular place that had this old rickety, really rickety rope bridge going over this canyon that literally was hundreds and hundreds of feet deep. And I would stand on the side there and just like, I don't know. But I'm watching all these other people go across it perfectly safe. So I knew it was safe. In my head I could go, I know they're not going to die, but I might. I might be the guy that steps out on this and it finally breaks. Right? So intellectually I knew that was stupid, but practically in our heart, it was still hard to step out on that, but I would. I would grab the rails and close my eyes, you know, and just kind of make my way across, you know, and then when other people would step on it, I'd go, don't do that! Why? Because maybe, maybe I'm the one, you know? I'm not like that baby bird that gets kicked out of the nest and can fly. I will go right to the bottom. I will experience the fear of falling from high places. Again, I knew it in my head, but not necessarily in the heart. Job chapter 42, verse 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jeremiah 32:27 Behold I am the Lord the God of all flesh is anything too difficult for me Psalm 115:3 But our God is in heaven he does whatever he pleases Psalm 135:6 Whatever the Lord pleases he does in heaven and on earth in the sea and even in the deep Mark chapter 10 verse 27 Looking at them Jesus said With people it's impossible But with God, all things are possible. So again, we can know this intellectually, but sometimes we struggle when it defies logic or when it becomes personal. I even think about Mary. Remember Mary? Her response. Look at Luke chapter 1. I mean, Mary, everything we know about Mary, this godly young woman, okay? The Magnificat that she crafted and, and preaches to us from Luke was spectacular. Her theological understanding was impeccable. And so this angel appears to her as a young virgin with no husband. Chapter 1, verse 28. Whoops. And it starts like this. And coming to her, he said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will convene or conceive in your womb and bear a son, and his name shall be Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I'm a virgin? Even Mary with her sound understanding of theology, we get that from her Magnificat. She understood. But even with that, intellectually, she still looked at the angel and said, I'm a virgin. This is is impossible. 
The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. How is it possible, Mary? God can do all things. She was satisfied with that answer, by the way. So what might have started as an exercise of, I know the Lord can do all things, but I'm a virgin. How can that be? And it went from that to her acceptance that, no, the Lord can do that. And then we see her beautiful, magnificent. We see her reporting to Elizabeth and the excitement and the joy of the child growing inside of her. God could indeed do all things, including make a virgin pregnant. So it was illogical for either one of these people, Sarah or Mary, to become pregnant because one was too old and the other was a virgin. But God promised both the child in spite of the impossibility that both of them were facing. So Mary says, Behold, the bondservant of my Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. The author of Hebrews tells us that Sarah ultimately had her own epiphany with this. Just listen to this, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself, by faith, believing God, even Sarah, the one who laughed, the one who said, really me? And my husband, the old dude? Even she received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time since she considered him faithful who had promised. There's probably no important or significant example of one of God's promises that seems too good to be true, but one that nonetheless he's able to do, and that is to save sinners and to give us eternal life. I want you to look at verses 19 through 26. Go back to Genesis, yep. In fact, jump up to um, verse 16. And the men rose up from there and looked down upon Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about to him. And so the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and I will see if I have done entirely according to this outcry or if they have done accordingly to this outcry which has come to me and if not, I will know. And then we see ultimately the angels head down to Sodom to investigate. And it's interesting the foreshadowing we see here because as we will watch this interaction between Abraham and the Lord and this dialogue that takes place with Abraham realizing, Lord, you're going down to judge the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. But you're a righteous God. What if there are 50 righteous people there? Will you still wipe it out? Or will you desire to forgive them? In essence, well, what if there are 45? What if there are 40? What if there are only 30, 10? And he begins to whittle down. That's the kind of God we have. We have a God, and we'll get to this in the future weeks here, that is eager to forgive. He's eager to save. We see that in the gospel. 
The Gospel makes abundantly clear to us that two things are true. One of them is we can't save ourselves. We are sinners and we cannot save ourselves. It's impossible, right? But the second truth is that God is able to do that. And He's promised to do it and no matter how much we feel about ourselves, we have to trust that He can actually do what He says. For me personally, um, I didn't initially want to accept that. How could God save me? I knew who I was. I was raised in a Catholic home. I understood right from wrong, sin and righteousness. How could God do that? And then after I got saved, I really began to wonder, how can God continue to keep me saved when I behave as I do and do the things that I do? In fact, I looked at myself and said, I'm worse now than I was before. Because I know better now. And I struggled with what we call eternal security. How can God keep me saved? That's too incredible. But yet that's what He promised. And He could certainly do it. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. You've seen this before, we won't read all of it, but it starts this way. Talking about the difference between Jews and Gentiles and where we are, each individual. It says in verse 10, there's none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become useless. There's none who does good, there's not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is on their lips, whose mouths whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are on their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. goes on all the way down through 28 to say that we are justified though by faith. So he starts off by saying there's nobody deserving to be forgiven by God or to be saved by God. Not a single living human being has ever been worthy except for Jesus Christ. And he didn't need to be saved. But there's been nobody that has been perfect except Christ. Every single one of us. That's our condition. And yet God says, but I can save you. 20 verse 21 but now apart from the law the righteousness of God has been manifest being witnessed by God by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for those who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith this was to demonstrate his righteousness because of the forbearance of God he passed over all sins previously committed for the demonstration I say of his righteousness in the, of the present time so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus where, there isn't, where then is there boasting? it's excluded by what kind of law of works? no but by the law of faith we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law what this actually tells us is that no man is able to save themselves but God has promised to save and he can save he makes good on his promises remember 
All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we see what we refer to as the first gospel, which is when Adam and Eve sin, and, and God alludes to the sending of a Savior in Genesis chapter 3. He had already promised, I'll fix this. Was it too incredible for God? Did mankind, I mean, they had to wipe them out with a flood. <laughs> but God still, even with Abraham here, when he promised Abraham, I'm going to show you with the issue with Sodom and Gomorrah, what you need to remember. Because ultimately, Abraham, through you, I'm ultimately going to bless the earth. I'm going to bring salvation to the earth because of you. Why? Because God can make good on his promises. He can do everything that he promises. And if he's able to save us, he's able to keep us. He goes on in chapter 8 of Romans, verse 31 through 39. Let's go on into verse 4, or chapter 4. For then we shall say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, whoops, let me go to Romans 8, I'm sorry, Romans 8, chapter 31, or verse 31. Romans 8, verse 31. What should we say then to these things? If God is for us, in other words, if he saved us, who's against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over to us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is one who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who is raised... Who is at the right hand of God and who intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For it's written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquerors or conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is that? Because God can do all things. God has promised to save us. God has promised to keep us. Jesus said that he would not lose any one of us. Can he do it? Yeah, why? The promise may seem incredible. We may sit and think, no. Yeah, he saved me. I know he can do that, but can he keep me? I've got to work a little harder. No. God says, I can do it. When I think about all this, I think to myself, God has made some really incredible promises. These promises that he's given to us flow out of the peace and the relationship that we now have through him. In the same way that God's promises to Abraham flowed out of the peace and the fellowship that Abraham had with God, those promises that flowed out of that, they're similar to ours. The promises God has made to us, he's going to save us, he's going to keep us, and even now, if he's willing to do those things, what is he not willing to do for us now? Those promises might seem incredible to us, but God can do them. And again, they flow out of the peace and the fellowship that we share with him. Amen?